Again, good morning. Glad you all are with us this morning. Thanks for being here with us. My name is Thomas. For those of you that I have not met yet, I know we have some visitors with us this morning. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for joining us. We've got a mug, like Ryan said, in the, uh, in the foyer for you. We'd love for you to take one of those with you, get more information about the church, about the Christian faith, hopefully find ways to get you uh, more plugged in. Hope you had a good week this week, as Ryan said, man, the snow this week. Hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was a lot of snow. I guess you people didn't, but uh, I was kind of overwhelmed by it all, but I actually kind of enjoyed it this time around, uh, especially now that we have a south-facing driveway. Uh, does anybody else who has a south-facing driveway take like a sick pleasure in watching your north-face driveway like neighbors? It's like, oh, you missed the spot. We probably need to repent of that, though, don't you think? We probably need to apologize for that one. Uh, not sure if you're aware of this, but several weeks ago, Nathan showed a picture of a Denver Broncos logo, and he asked you what came to mind when you saw that logo. Remember what many of you said? Win! Well, need I remind you that since that moment, they haven't. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just saying. What we see happening here with the career and the arm strength of Peyton Manning, it actually sets up our message perfectly this morning. You see, all good things must come to an end. Oh, poor little Peyton Poo. All right, it applies to an athlete's arm strength, a vacation in the Bahamas, even a piece of Snickers cheesecake over at the Cheesecake Factory. All good things must come to an end. But as we're going to see this morning, although that mantra applies to almost everything else in life, it doesn't apply to God's story. In the final chapter of our walk through the Bible, we're going to see that even though we're at the end of the story, all oh, the story is far, far from over. This morning, we are in chapter 31 of a resource we've been walking through all year entitled The Story. It's just a chronological take on the Bible, and it helps us to see how all the different characters and storylines and plots and developments in the Scripture, how they all piece together to tell this amazing story about God. And this amazing story about God, this upper story, this story that's on this, this high end up here, it actually makes sense of and gives meaning to and clarifies all things on these lower level stories, like our stories. So it's only after you understand what's going on with God that you understand what's going on with you. And this morning we're in chapter 31, the very last chapter. It covers the book of Revelation, and specifically chapters 1 through 5 of Revelation and 19 through 22. My hope again is that in this chapter, like all the rest, all the other 30, you will see how God's story breathes life into your own. Let me pray that will happen. Father, would you, would you speak to us now? We want, this more to, we want this to be more than just a discussion. We want this to be more than just a, a book study. We want this more than just to be a 30 minutes of, of someone talking at an audience. We want this to be a moment where, where lives are changed, where, where hearts and minds are illuminated, where truth is experienced and embraced, Father God, where, where Jesus is seen face to face. Would you make that happen now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I recently heard about a student who was taking a, a physics course in college uh, the professor was in the middle of a rather lengthy and difficult lecture. Uh, it was a complicated concept he was walking them through when a student in the back of the class raised his hand and said, excuse me, why in the world do we have to study this stuff? The class went deathly quiet. The professor looked right at this kid and said, to save lives. Then he promptly went back to the lecture. Well, a few minutes passed and the student wasn't satisfied with that answer, so raised his hand again and said, well, how in the world does an intro to physics class save lives? The professor again looked right at him and said, it saves lives because it weeds students like you out of medical school. 
You see, just because something is confusing doesn't mean that we should laugh at it. It doesn't mean that we should scoff at it. And I'd put the book of Revelation in this category. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And it more or less kind of pulls the curtain back, if you will, on heaven itself. In the book, the Apostle John, who, who writes these words for us, he sees and then he shares what's happening behind the scenes on this spiritual, unseen, cosmic level. He reveals to us, and hence the title of the book, what God is doing behind the scenes, what he's doing in this world, and he also reveals to us what God will do at the end of the world and when the world comes to an end. But for a lot of reasons, a lot of people tend to think that this book looks and feels and reads like a physics textbook. It's a little complicated, and we're not exactly sure why in the world we should be studying. You see, for one, the book is hard to understand. I will, I'll give you that one. There are bizarre creatures. There are symbolic numbers. There are people eating scrolls, bottomless pits, four horses of the apocalypse. There's just some strange stuff in there, and it's okay to say that. Plus, no other book in the Bible has, has caused more obsession or strange teaching or wild speculation than this one. I mean, this book has been debated and argued over since it was first written. And over the years, I can't tell you how some, some strange interpretations I've come across, how strange they truly are. I love what scholar and pastor G.K. Chesterton said about the book. He said, though John the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. You see what he's saying there? You think John said some wacky stuff? Well, wait until you hear what certain preachers say about John's stuff. They see things and describe things that John never even imagined himself. So although this material is somewhat hard to understand at times, although it has been abused throughout time, and although people argue over what it says at the end of time, it is time that we read it. And here's why. Revelation 1.3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear these words and take to heart what is written in it. You see, the very last book of the Bible is not intended to baffle us. It's intended to bless us. But you got to keep several things in mind in order for that to happen. First of all, let it be known I am no expert in this material. I don't preach very often out of the book of Revelation. I haven't spent a great deal of time studying it. This morning, I'm relying heavily on some thoughts of some friends, especially Jeff Vines, a pastor in Pasadena. Plus, in addition to not knowing everything about the book, I'm going to try to tell you everything there is in the book in 30 minutes, which is impossible to do. Or is it? But in all honesty, if you want more information about this book, I want you to talk to Dan Sarian. Dan, raise your hand. Dan is teaching a class for us on Sunday mornings. He's going verse by verse through this book. Uh, they've been going through it now for maybe six months, and they're just getting to chapter two, so they're going deep, okay? But if you disagree with anything that I say, if you don't like anything that I say this morning, go see Dan. <laughs> but in all honesty, I think this book is easy to understand. I think it's got one message, and the message is so, so clear. And again, the message is designed to bless us. But let's keep a couple things in mind. The first thing I want you to keep in mind is this. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a writing style that primarily uses signs and symbols uh, to describe different things. Now, there are only about four or five books in the entire Bible that fall into this category. All the other books are not like these four or five. So when you start to read these four or five, you have to read them just a little bit differently. When it comes to those four or five apocalyptic books, you have to read them and, and not look at the literal words themselves. You have to look at the meaning and the signs 
maybe what those words are all pointing to. Um, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. So let me give you an example of this. During his ministry, we read about a story when Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds 5,000 people. Remember that story? Now, those books, the, the, the words about Jesus are not apocalyptic literature. So you're, you're, in, you're supposed to take those words literally. He took five loaves of bread, two fish, and fed 5,000 people. You don't need to look for any undercurrent, like, under, like uh, meaning behind those words. You don't need to look for any other signs or symbols. Of those words. What, five, five loaves of bread, what could that mean? Two fish, 5,000 men. What's he talking about? He's talking about five loaves of bread, two fish, and 5,000 people. He's saying Jesus can do a lot with very little. You with me? So you read all the other books very literally. You take them at their word. But these apocalyptic books, these four or five other books, you don't take them literally. You don't take them at their word. You got to see what their words are pointing to. So let me give you an example. In that book, we read the number 144,000. This number is brought up to describe the number of people that will be saved, the number of people that will be in heaven. Well, if we take that literally, we're in trouble because that doesn't even describe the five largest churches in America. So what about the rest of us? It's not meant to be taken literally, though. It's meant to be taken symbolically. And here's how, that, here's how you're supposed to take it. In the book of Revelation, the number 10 is very significant. It, re it represents completion. It represents finality. The number 12 is also very significant because it represents God's people. All the people of God are represented in the number 12. So 144,000. Kind of confusing. So what you do is you ask your associate pastor who doubles as a nerdy spreadsheet guy. You ask him to help you like crunch some numbers. Here's what happens. You multiply 12 by 12 because Jesus sent out the God's people. He sent his people out two by two. Remember that? So 12 by 12. Then you multiply that by 10, by 10, and by 10. The Trinity, 10. So 12 times 10, you get 144,000. What does that mean? It means all of God's people, all of the 12s, will be with God at the end when the 10 comes. You with me? But if you don't understand that, if you're taking it literally, you're very confused. You're not exactly sure how that works out. But 144,000 represents all of God's people all together at the end with God. The same is true when you come across the number seven. It represents perfection. The number six represents imperfection. So the devil is labeled with the number 666. Again, three times representing like entirety. So he's the perfect representation of imperfection. All right, I see some blank faces right now, but, but stay with me here little physics lecture just for a second here, and then we'll get into some other stuff. But it's all symbolic. You have to keep these signs and these symbols in mind. If you take things literally in this book, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. The second thing you got to keep in mind in this book is that Revelation is also written in code. It's almost written in this secret language of sorts. And that seems strange to us unless you understand the context in which it was written. See, that code was designed to protect the Christians who were originally going to be reading and hearing this stuff. In AD 70, the Christians at that time, they were much like Christians today in places like Iraq and Syria. They were dying for their faith. They were being persecuted because of their belief in Jesus. The Romans wanted all of the Christians dead. So how would I, as a pastor, how would I encourage my flock? How, is I, how, how would I, as a pastor, bless Christian people? How would I encourage you to stand strong in the face of your opposition when your opposition is literally standing right next to you? I'd speak in code. I'd develop a secret language that only you understood, that only I understood, that the Romans didn't understand, so that we could communicate about deep, important things, and the Romans would have no clue what we're talking about. 
communicate a message that only certain people would appreciate and be able to decipher, then everybody else thinks you're weird, thinks you're kooky. But before we chalk all of this up as being weird and a little bit kooky, uh, let, me, let me say this. Every married couple in here knows exactly what I'm talking about right now when it comes to like secret codes and a little insider language. Married couples, tell me you don't have some, some lingo that you use when you have a little too much of the in-laws, right? It's like, honey, <clears throat> it's time to go feed the flamingos. <laughs> yeah, let's get out of here, right? We all have this insider language. We all know what it means to, to tell somebody something, but it doesn't mean that something, it means something else. And we're hoping that nobody else knows what that something else is. That's kind of how the book of Revelation reads. The last thing we have to keep in mind when reading this book is that Revelation was written for us, but not to us. Revelation was written for us, but not to us. In my understanding of it, when John first wrote this book, he didn't have those living in Littleton, Colorado in mind. He wasn't primarily concerned about the 21st century back in the first century. So when John talks about flying locusts with breastplates on in chapter 9, I don't think he's talking about Russian helicopters. Call me crazy, but I just don't think he had that in mind. Now, could those writings have multiple meanings? Of course. Could those things come to fruition in different ways over time? Of course. Were his writings meant to encourage believers from the first century all the way to the 21st century? Of course. But it's important to understand John was not writing to us. He was writing for his first century audience. And here's the thing about a first century audience. They had a deep understanding and a deep appreciation for the Old Testament. That's how you break the code. That's how you read this book is through Old Testament lenses. There is not one symbol, there's not one animal, there's not one number that we read about in the book of Revelation that we first do not read about in the Old Testament. So you look at that book and you're thoroughly confused because you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know all the prequels. 500 allusions in the book of Revelation all tied to the Old Testament. So when we understand that Revelation was written first to real people back in the first century, then we can start to apply it to our lives in the 21st century. And that's the beauty of this book. It wasn't written to us, but it still applies to us. Let me give you an example a friend of mine used uh, to try to tie all this up, try to make sense of this a little bit. The analogy revolves around the world of sports. Let's say it's the winter of 1999 and we all live in Chicago, Illinois. Not sure why you don't want to do that, but let's just say we are. Imagine you see the following paragraph in the newspaper. See if you have any clue what this person's talking about. The bull which once ruled the earth for 72 months has suffered a mighty fall. For at the end of the 72 months, the great right horn of the bull, whose number is 20 and 3, let the reader understand, departed. And so did the great left horn of the bull. Then the third horn of the bull, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman, likewise departed. <laughs> then all of the beasts of the earth, the hornets and the timber wolves, they came and they devoured the flesh of the bull, and the glory of the mighty bull was laid low. What? Yeah, try to interpret that. Most of you are probably thoroughly confused right now. Maybe a few avid sports fans get this, but here's the interpretation. The Chicago Bulls had been the most dominant team in the NBA for six years. From 93 to 99, they won six championships. But then things changed. Three of the most prominent bulls left the team, symbolized by the three horns. There's Michael Jordan, who wore the number 20 and 3. There's Scottie Pippen, the other great horn. And there's Dennis Rodman, who had piercings all over his body and, yes, dressed like a woman. <laughs> Those three men made that team the amazing team that it was. But then when they left, the Bulls were pretty much beaten by everybody else. Teams like the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Charlotte Hornets came in and beat them at home. 
Now you get the interpretation. If I read it again, you'd probably laugh. You'd probably enjoy it. You'd probably be blessed by it. But it's because you had some insider information. You understood what was going on. That's how it is with the book of Revelation. Another way of saying it would be like this. Let's say someone in Africa picked up one of our newspapers today and they saw this editorial cartoon in there. If they didn't have any understanding of our political structure or or the signs and symbols that we use to describe our politics, they would think we do some pretty strange things to our animals. But we get it, don't we? We understand the context. We understand the signs. We understand the symbols. And so that message makes sense. The same is true with the book of Revelation. So when we read that book, we have to keep in mind it's apocalyptic literature, it's written in code, and it's not written to us, but it is written for us. All right, that was a ton of information on how to read the book, but what do we actually read in the book? Well, the oldest approach to understanding the book is called the cyclical approach. Let me describe that to you. The cyclical approach simply means this, that the writer of this book used different images and symbols to communicate one single truth. So he sets the stage with all these animals and all these images and all these signs and symbols. Then after he's made his point, he he wipes the stage clean. The curtain comes out. He puts new signs, new symbols, new characters up, and then he shows you a new scene. But that scene is communicating the very same thing that scene one communicated to you. And he does that six times. John says, here's the thing I want you to understand. Let me tell you again. Now let me tell you again. Now let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. He does it six times. Six times in the book of Revelation, he sets a stage, tells us something, then wipes the stage clean and does it all over again. Now, before you get upset with him for doing this, parents, do you understand this teaching method? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, you didn't get it the first time. Let me rephrase to you, clean your room, right? Let me tell you again and again and again and again. I think John is doing that very same thing here in Revelation. And what that thing is, what that main message is, is beautifully described by this story. A teenage boy had fallen down a flight of stairs, gotten severely injured, actually became a quadriplegic. Yet throughout his life, you could always hear him say this one line, God is fair. God is fair. He would say that again and again and again, God is fair. Well, one day when he's in the hospital, a priest walks by his room and he hears the young man saying this and he just has to stop and ask him, how in the world, given your condition, could you say that? How could you say God is fair? Well, the boy replied, priest, You see, God has all of eternity to make it up to me. God has all of eternity to make it up to me. That's quite a story. But I actually think that's the essence and the message in the final chapter of our story. If I had to summarize what John's trying to communicate here in the book of Revelation, it would boil down to these simple words. Those who live for eternity will live eternally. Those who live for eternity will live eternally eternally. All right, object lesson time. Let's use this rope here as an analogy and an illustration for this. I saw Francis Chan do this one time and it stuck with me ever since. Let's say this, this rope represents your life. This is a timeline of your existence. And let's say it goes on and on and on forever and ever. You with me so far? Okay, well this little section right here, this represents your time on earth. You with me? This represents your time on the earth. And most of us spend most of our time thinking about this little section of our existence, do we not? And not only do we think about it, we're totally fixated on this little section. This is all we think, this is, we're consumed by this little section. Some of us are like, I'm gonna save, 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 save right here so I can buy an RV right here. (laughs) 
I'm going to live it up right here because when you get to the middle, it's pretty much boring over here. Right? This is all we think about, this little section. This is life as we know it. Well, wouldn't you know it, there's more life to come. A lot more life. In fact, it's life that never ends. It's called eternal life. If you read this week in the chapter, you, you read the phrase forever and ever, again and again and again. It's because John in the book of Revelation wants to open your eyes to the fact that there's a lot more than this. There's a lot more coming after this. There's this. There's all of eternity. And it never ends. And if, if that's true, guys, if, if that's true, don't you think, given this is our existence, this is a timeline of our life, if that is true, if what John is saying is true, don't you think it's crazy that we only focus on this, that we only, that we only prepare for enjoying this, and we don't ever spend any time thinking about or preparing for this? I mean, this seems a little bit bigger than that. This seems a little bit more important than that. And yet all we think about is this. Like, that car. I gotta have a four-wheel drive. I mean, it snows all the time here, so I just gotta spend the extra money that I have on that four-wheel drive. Come on, Becca. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> How am I gonna get more vacation time? Because I really wanna do that. And, and this, that, and the other with my house, and this, that, and the other with my hobbies. It's all about this life. And John says, would you open your eyes? There's another life to come. And you need to think about it. You gotta think about it. See, despite what most people say, our time on earth, this section, this is not the entirety of our story. This is not where the story begins and ends, not at all. Crossing over this threshold right here, getting to this point, this is the finish line. This is the goal. This is the hope. Because Christians know this is not all there is. There's so much more to come. So why don't we think about it more often? Why don't we talk about it more often? Why don't we invest in it more often? So whether John is encouraging the seven churches at the beginning of this book, he's sometimes even yelling at them, what he's doing is saying, church, this is not all there is. As a church, you have to think about eternity. Oh, I just hit myself in the face. That's what the earth does, isn't it? It's like, pow, pow, ah. <laughs> but eternity, eternity is like soft. It's like a blanket you wrap around you. See? All right, sorry. Even later when he's talking about what comes or how, how, this, this does, how this point comes for the entire world, even during all of that stuff, he's simply saying, there is so much more, another world to come. So whether he's talking to individuals or he's talking to the entire cosmos, John is simply trying to say, those who live for eternity will live eternally. That's all he's trying to get you to see. Think about this with me. When someone we know, um, someone we love, when they pass away, what do we tend to say? Especially a believer, especially a Christian, we tend to say, they're in a better place now right? They're in a better place. It's hard to get our minds around that. It's hard to really fathom that. But guess what? There is a better place, a much better place. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, signs and symbols. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the older order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We don't just say to Christians when when other Christians pass away that they're in a better place because we have nothing else to say. We don't just say it to make ourselves feel better or to say something in an awkward moment. You know why we say there's a better place? Do you know why we say they're in a better place? Because there is a better place. It's a real thing. And they are there. I say they're in a better place because I believe it with all my heart. There's another life to come after this life. A much better life. A much different life. An eternal life. John says that in this section, we will last forever. John says basically that in this section here, it won't even compare to this section. In this section here, we will literally drink from the river of life. We will literally eat from the tree of life. We won't even need the sun because God's radiance will illuminate our world. We won't even have to go to church in this section. I'm glad you didn't clap. Thank you. It sounds weird, I know, but you know why? Because God will be right next to us all the time. He will always be with us. And our praise of him will always be coming out of us. So you don't have to go to church because you're always gonna be in church. You're always gonna be understanding and learning more about and singing praises and spending time with the Father. That's what this next life entails. That's what comes next. That's what happens after this life. That's the rest of the story. See, we just, we just got to the first couple chapters of the story. We just kind of kick the story off, and for all of eternity, we will learn more and more and more about the God of this story. But here's the thing, and here's the next takeaway I want you to get from this morning's message. The entire Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, it teaches us that what we do in this section will affect what happens to us in this section. What we experience and how we spend our time, what we focus on in this section will greatly determine what we experience and get to do in this section. You with me? This matters. You don't just say, oh, forget this. I'm going to do my own thing. I could care less. Heaven, come on. I want to get out of here. No, 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 no. What you do here matters. It matters for all of eternity, in fact. Revelation 20, 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and hell itself gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Revelation 22, 12. Look, I'm coming soon, Jesus says. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. You see, what we do in this section will determine whether we get rewarded in this section or whether we regret everything in this section. That's why this matters. Because what you do here, all of it will be judged at this moment and you will either be rewarded for it or you will regret it. When we cross over from this life to the next, when we get to this point right here, one thing is very clear. You and I will meet our maker. John says it, but so does Mumford and Sons, right? We were designed to meet our maker. And one day we will. We will, when we die, we will stand face to face with the one who made us, the one who ruled over us. And at that point, the one who sees all things, the one who knows all things, the one who's the beginning, middle, and end of all things, Jesus the Christ, he will evaluate, judge, and reveal all things in that moment right here. You might be able to fool your friends or your family members. Shoot, you could even pull one over on your pastor. Your social profile might show that you are the most giving, sacrificial person there is. You can claim, I love God and I love others. Well, we'll see. At this moment right here, we'll see. 
Everybody's actions throughout this little section will be revealed. Not only their actions, but their attitudes. Everything we did in this section matters because it will determine what happens in the next section. I don't know about you, but I've done some things in life that I regret. I, uh, I purchased a few things that I regret. I remember that car I bought one time without asking Becca for permission. Yeah, oops. That's why I brought the other car up because I learned from my mistakes. But imagine the feeling I had sitting in my living room and I hear the garage door go up and, I, and the new car is sitting in the, in the garage. I'm like, she's gonna see it. I thought I could hide it. Yeah, I regret that. I regret that. I've wasted time doing certain things that I regret, like watching 15 hours one Saturday of all Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I, I regret that. I, my eyeballs and brain cells regret that. I've said certain things that I regret, like calling an elder a bad name, bad word one time in an elder's meeting. Yeah, oops. Not here, okay? And that's not why I'm here, okay? That's not just... I saw you like... But I regret that. But my list of regrets goes a lot deeper than that. Those are just the things I feel comfortable sharing with you. I've got regrets and things that I've done that I hope you never find out about, that I hope you never see or hear about. And I'm sure that you can relate. But if we're not careful, church, if we're not careful, the things in life that we regret can turn into a life that we regret. The things in life that we regret they can just add up again and again and again, and we end up regretting all of it. When we come to the end of it, we look back on it and we regret it. That's not what John wants to have happen to you. He wants you to live in light of eternity now so you don't regret all of this, so you're rewarded for all of this. That's the goal. That's the hope. You have to live with eternity in mind. And then and only then will you actually live eternally. But those who only focused on this section, those who only lived for this section, those who only thought about or invested in this section, for those who thought this was the beginning, middle, and end of their story, they're going to be surprised when the end comes. They're going to be very, very surprised that the story keeps going. And Revelation shows us that the story doesn't turn out too well for those who've only lived for this section. A friend of mine told me something last week that I've been thinking about ever since. He said that when, when we get to this point, when we stand before Jesus, when there's this judgment moment, when all things are either uh, revealed and rewarded or regretted, when, when we get there, he's looking for one thing in us. He's looking for one thing from us, his reflection. When you stand face to face with him, he wants to see his face in you. And then this will be the greatest experience you've ever had. But if he looks at you and only sees you, you're not going to want to experience what comes next. So as we close this morning, imagine with me, just for a second, imagine what it might look like if we actually did what the book of Revelation challenges us to do. Imagine what it might look like if, if we did this calling, if we lived out this calling. Imagine if we started living this life in full view of the next life. Imagine if we started walking through this section, knowing that one day we will walk into the next section. Imagine if we started doing things right now, things that matter and things that will carry over, things that will pay off dividends in the life to come. Imagine that with me. Imagine using your time right now in full view of forever. Imagine investing in relationships more. 
Imagine serving others more and less time watching 15 hours of, of Lord of the Rings on Netflix. Imagine using your time in full view of eternity. Imagine using your money right now in full view of eternity. Imagine investing in the poor right now. Imagine giving back to God instead of just purchasing more stuff for yourself. Imagine saying, I'm going to invest my money, not just in some retirement account, I'm going to invest it in eternity. That's totally different. Imagine facing your trials and your difficulties, right, the hardships of this life. Imagine facing that right now, a, a world full of pain. Imagine going through that right now, knowing there is a world without pain that is yet to come. Imagine speaking God's words to others more than your own. Imagine praying more and posting less. Imagine working towards his glory and the advancement of his kingdom over your own. Imagine making a big deal out of Jesus' name instead of your own. Imagine, imagine this life lived in view and in hope and in expectation of this life. Imagine that. Imagine doing what John did. Imagine walking through all of this, hoping and waiting for and preparing for all of this. That's how the book ends. That's how the story ends. Revelation 22:20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You remember that show, Extreme Home Makeover? Anybody used to watch that? What a great show that was, right? It's like some family that was totally down and out. They didn't have much hope, they didn't have much life, they didn't have much, much stuff. And so the, the, the network comes, this show comes, and with the, the support of the community, they build this entirely new house for them. They give them new stuff and new hope and new life. But do you remember the great reveal when they finally get to see their new house? you remember what everybody has to chant? Move that bus! Remember that? Because what happens is the family's standing here, but they parked this huge RV right in front of them. So they couldn't see the life that's yet to come. They couldn't see what's on the other side of that bus. So everybody's got to chant, move that bus, move that bus. It's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. they move the bus. It's like, what? Right? And then commercial breaks. Like, ah. <laughs> see, that's how, that's how John ends this story. He says, come, Lord Jesus. You know what he's saying? Move that bus. There is a life that is yet to come. There's an experience of life that I've never had before. There is all that I've ever wished and hoped for. It's on the other side of this life. It's right on this threshold. Move that bus, Jesus. Come, come, because I can't wait for it. I can't wait to see what you have in store. I hope that that's your prayer. I hope that that's your the cry of your heart. You only say that, though, when God's story becomes your story. You only say that when God's story is the most important story. You only say that when God's story is how you make sense of your story. And when you say that, you say, come on, final chapter. I can't wait to see what's in you. I can't wait to see what I read about in you. Move that bus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray that's the cry of our heart. Father, this is hard stuff for us to talk about. Everything in this life is finite, Father God. Every good thing comes to an end. A football game, a piece of cheesecake, a nap, a vacation, even life itself seems to come to an end. And yet you ask us to, to look, look above and look beyond the things that come to an end and help us constantly, Father, to have on our minds the things that are eternal, the things that will last forever. I pray that we live right now in view of eternity, in the hope of eternity, investing in eternity, Father. 
I pray that we use our time and our money and our resources and, and our relationships, that we use it all knowing full well that one day we will be rewarded for it or we will regret it. Help us to not regret any of it, Father. So help us to live that little section in full view of the eternal section that is yet to come. Help us to have eternity on our minds and even on the tips of our tongue. Come, Lord Jesus. Help that to be the cry of this church's heart. Make it so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. Hope you have an amazing day. Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out. Go Broncos. Be strong and courageous.